Greetings, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here. Yeah, I know. Where have I been? I've been working on this the past six months. Remember back in July 2014, I finished the last of those three Edmund Backhouse episodes, CHP 139. And then I disappeared until almost Thanksgiving and November, working on that epic 10-part history of T-series. Well, I don't know how this history of Chinese philosophy will stack up against a subject as brisk and refreshing as tea. I've been MIA for almost half a year, working on these nine episodes that will be released starting today, one per week, and then after part nine, we'll move on to the next great thing here at the CHP, and I'll try to put some distance behind me before I go on my next hiatus to work on some future epic. Honestly, this series, History of Chinese Philosophy, had its naysayers. A lot of friends of the pod said, uh, yeah, really, Laz? Philosophy? Do you think that's going to go down well with the masses? Let me just say, I didn't get an overwhelming amount of encouragement to proceed with the history of Chinese philosophy. Anticut media, upper management, not to mention preferred stockholders, really put up some stiff resistance about your humble narrator running with this topic. But I'm the decider here, says so on my business card. And I have this theory that, well, knowing at least the barest of bones about Chinese philosophy, as esoteric, deep, and seemingly unfathomable as the subject may be, well, knowing this stuff is still something that has some shuqiu, some demand out there. And I know this branch I'm about to climb onto might break under me, but I'm going to say there's quite a pent-up demand. I myself have always been meaning to bone up on my own understanding of Chinese philosophy to the best of my foggy memory from those four years in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. I don't think I ever took any philosophy classes, but like a lot of you, perhaps, the, the interest to learn about this subject was always there. So I was thinking earlier this year, who else in the global CHP community besides me still has this nagging curiosity to learn a little about Chinese philosophy, but, you know, aren't looking to penetrate too deeply into that vast galaxy of wisdom. I figured there had to be more than a few of you who, well, as far as Chinese philosophy went, at least, were looking for, you know, more of a grab-and-go meal or bento-style taotzhan rather than the whole... 24-course banquet with the Hong Dou Sha at the end. So in presenting this topic, I wanted to craft something that made it easier to learn about what Chinese philosophy was basically about. Who were the main players? What did each of these sages and scholars say? There aren't going to be any deep dives into the depths of each individual philosopher's thought. So to do all this, I thought I'd trace the development of Chinese philosophy through the lives of about three dozen philosophers. Some we'll look at in greater depth than others, and we'll trace the historical timeline and see where philosophy in China began, how it developed, and throughout this series we'll also examine the historic events going on in the background that were driving a lot of this thought, you know, being the China History Podcast and all. For many of you who are quite familiar with the subject or seriously studied Chinese philosophy before, you might find this buffet table here at the CHP a little too lowbrow, perhaps. I know some listeners are going to 
grumble that they're very much pork and is cold row. But despite the plethora, if I may use the P word, of shortcomings, I hope you'll find this CHP series was at least worth playing in the background while you did whatever you were doing. It's also my hope that, uh, as Will Durant said in his introduction to classical Chinese philosophy, that this, quote, brief and superficial introduction leads you to study the Chinese philosophers themselves, as Goethe studied them, and Voltaire, and Tolstoy, end quote. We look at these ancients and perhaps think their world was so simple back then. They were so ignorant of so much knowledge and intellectual discovery that we take for granted in our day. Their circumstances compared to ours in the 21st century, eh, what what could we possibly have in common with these people from so long ago? Well, in examining the things they cared about and thought about, it turns out we have quite a bit in common with them. The historic scope of this series will span the beginnings of the Western Zhou to Wangyang Ming, midway through the Ming Dynasty. We're going to revisit a couple topics previously discussed, namely the I Ching and Taoism. Those episodes were pretty ancient themselves, so I'm freshening them up a little. And we'll take that old wine and pour it into these new bottles I picked up at a yard sale. And I will make them part of this whole series. Before we get into the first part of our story, I wanted to say that the backdrop for all this history was the Zhou Dynasty. We always hear about how old China is, and this is pretty much the farthest back you can go in recorded Chinese history. Other than all the bronzeware, ironware, and other relics made from uh, inorganic materials, not much from that time survived down to our day. The Chinese invented paper, but... Lun wouldn't launch the paper industry till the first century of the Common Era. And all these works from these Zhou-era thinkers that bear their name, the Laozi, the Mengzi, Xunzi, Zhuangzi, Liezi, Mozi, Hanfeizi, eh, how much of that material can accurately be attributed to each philosopher, if any of it? The earliest works that have survived so far were all dug out of Han Dynasty tombs. All these texts that scholars said contain the words of Confucius and other masters ran the gauntlet of 25 centuries of argument and reinterpretation. Did we even get 1% of what these classical philosophers actually said? And for those who can't read classical Chinese and have to read these ancient texts in a foreign language... I wonder how much of the beauty, subtleties, and perhaps true meaning behind a lot of the texts got papered over in translation. Feng Yolan mentioned something interesting. He said, quote, Religion was to other civilizations what philosophy was to China. End quote. Describing religion as simply philosophy that contains superstitions, dogmas, rituals, and institutions. Humanism. Renban Zhuyi. That's what Confucius and other Chinese philosophers mainly concerned themselves with. Matters of a metaphysical nature? Not so much. Not at the beginning, anyway. What mattered most in Chinese philosophy was worldly affairs and the role of humans in the big picture. Though there was plenty that was spiritual and mystical about Chinese philosophy, especially where Taoism was concerned, practical matters such as ethics morals, innate human knowledge, and politics figured most highly amongst uh, all the great thinkers. 
Now, I know not everyone who listens to the CHP is a Westerner, but I wanted to get this out of the way at the start of the program. When the Analects and other classical works made their way to Europe, they were most warmly received. What an eye-opener that was for the intellectuals of the day. That these works even found their way to Europe was thanks to the Jesuit fathers in China, most prominently Ruggieri, Ricci, Chalvan Bell, and Verbiste. When they began to crack that nut and learn the language and study the ancient texts, for the first time, Western readers got to hear these names like Kung Fu Tzu and Meng Tzu. And these Jesuits Latinized the names into Confucius and Mengtius to allow Europeans to better know them. So thanks to these Jesuits and all their heavy lifting, learning the language and translating the ancient texts that were available to them, all the great minds of the Enlightenment got to be the first generation of people in the West to read how these Chinese philosophers preached loving thy neighbor as thyself and doing unto others as you would like them to do unto you, centuries before these words could be read in Matthew 7.12. Diderot had written of the Chinese, quote, These peoples are superior to all other Asiatics in antiquity, art, intellect, wisdom, policy, and in their taste for philosophy, end quote. Voltaire, he wrote, quote, the body of this empire has existed 4,000 years without having undergone any sensible alteration in its laws, customs, language, or even in its fashions of apparel. The organization of this empire is, in truth, the best that the world has ever seen. End quote. Yeah, these Enlightenment greats really put China on a pedestal. Of course, they all lived during the glory years of the Qing. No one was saying that in the late 19th century. As we make our way through this series, I'll bring to your attention all the most important works and just mention a little bit about them. Some, like the Lunyu, or the uh, Analects of Confucius, the Mengzi, the Zhuangzi, the Dao De Jing. Of course, those are the most famous and are quoted most often, along with Sunzi's Art of War, which we won't cover in this series. But there were many others as well. And these texts are all filled with poems, dialogues, chronologies, pronouncements, aphorisms, parables, diagrams, you name it. Some, like the Zhuangzi, the so-called second book of the Dao, stand on their own merits as works of literature, even in translation. The common golden thread that seems to run through every philosopher, from Yu Zi to Wang Yangming, seems to always boil down to the question of how should someone live their life so that it's a worthwhile one? Are humans predisposed towards good or evil? And how should we, the sovereign down to the village nobody, how should we treat each other? How should we organize ourselves and live together with the hopes that our conduct and way of thinking will cause there to be no need for punishments or war? Poured into the foundation of classical Chinese philosophy were the stories and deeds of the greatest of China's ancient sage kings. And from the earliest times, the figures who were lionized more than any other, and who Confucius himself held up as the living ideals for what it meant to be a sage ruler, were three mythical emperors, Yao, Shun, and Yu, and three figures we know lived, Kings Wen and his two sons, King Wu and Zhou Gong, the Duke of Zhou, 
in all the thousands of years, there were so many great emperors and leaders and people from history. But those six, they didn't live to see it. But all of them, singly or collectively, became a metaphor in Chinese culture and history for what it meant to contain all the virtues in spades and to be considered a sage ruler. As far as Yao, Xun, and Yu were concerned, despite their mythical status in our day, the Zhou Dynasty historians said they were in fact real and wrote with great certainty about who they were and when they lived. But Sima Qian was as far away from the time of Yao as he was from our day. Confucius had said of Yao, quote, Concerning the good Yao, it is said that he ruled China for 100 years, the years of his life being 100, 10, and 6. He was kind and benevolent as heaven, wise and discerning as the gods. From afar, his radiance was like a shining cloud, and approaching near him, he was as brilliant as the sun. Rich was he without ostentation, and regal without luxuriousness. He wore a yellow cap and a dark tunic and rode in a red chariot drawn by white horses. The eaves of his thatch were not trimmed, and the rafters were unplaned, while the beams of his house had no ornamental ends. His principal food was soup, indifferently compounded, nor was he choice in selecting his grain. He drank his broth of lentils from a dish that was made of clay, using a wooden spoon. His person was not adorned with jewels, and his clothes were without embroidery, simple and without variety. He gave no attention to uncommon things and strange happenings, nor did he value those things that were rare and peculiar. He did not listen to songs of dalliance. His chariot of state was not emblazoned. In summer, he wore his simple garb of cotton, and in winter, he covered himself with skins of the deer. Yet he was the richest, the wisest, the longest-lived, and the most beloved of all that ever ruled China. End quote. We can see from the earliest times when recorded history was just in its infancy, already the lines were being drawn about what qualities were good and what was decent and what was not. Confucius held Yao up as a model. Why? He was plain, practical, had his two feet planted on the ground, wasn't swayed by luxuries and comforts, was devoid of selfish desires. So you can see clearly on already what is good is being defined. This standard for what constitutes human decency was starting to be more clearly defined. Even back then, it was considered good taste and good form to live and act modestly not ostentatiously. So then what was bad? If Yao, Xun, and Yu were held up by many philosophers as paragons of virtue, who were the examples to avoid? Well, Confucius in later generations would point at two kings, and these two were among the earliest villains in Chinese history. They've been mentioned before in previous CHP episodes. Kings Jie of Xia and Zhou of Shang were held up is essentially the opposite of what could be said of Yao. These two were the poster boys of wicked kings in Chinese history. Jie's time on this earth is traditionally pegged at 1728 to 1625 BCE. 
the time of uh, Hammurabi and Babylon and the Jewish exodus from Egypt and the later Hyksos invasion of that land. The other one, Zhou or Zhou Xin, he was the last ruler of the Shang. Both of these kings were remembered for their decadence that was only surpassed by their depravity, cruelty, and inattention to the demands of their job and the needs of their people. They were both in the same league as Caligula. Caligula's signature outrageous stunt, I guess, making his horse consul of Rome. For King Jia of Xia, it was a torture device designed by one of his people to entertain his sadistic and demanding concubine, Moshi. A person would get inserted into a metallic, cannon-like cylinder that was roasted atop a heap of white coals, and, uh, well, the rest I'll leave to your imagination. King Joshin, too, had a sadistic concubine he was trying to please, and in doing so was immortalized with the construction of the legendary Jiu-Chi-Rolin, the wine pool and meat forest, one of Chinese history's great legends of licentiousness and debauchery. These two, Kings Jie and Zhou, they were the gifts that kept on giving over the centuries, not only for Confucius to point to, but other philosophers and politicians as well. Jie and Zhou, they too got to become metaphors, but not in their own lifetimes. So the spectrum of excellence to ignominy ran from Yao to Zhou, and then there was everything else in between. Later, the great thinkers of the Han Dynasty will come up with the notion of Tianming, or the Mandate of Heaven. And when the ruler was more of a Yao than a Zhou, heaven determined them fit to rule, and this mandate was manifested in all kinds of positive ways. And if the ruler turned out to be more of a Jie or a Zhou, heaven cut them loose by demonstrating its displeasure through any number of natural disasters or astronomical phenomena. All these stories, who knows what's true or not. This is what tradition tells us. The Xia, the Shang, this was all prelude to the Zhou. And the Zhou dynasty, that's where the Big Bang happens for Chinese philosophy. And for three centuries or so, in this longest of all China's dynasties, comes the first part of our story. In 1949, big year in Chinese history that was, German philosopher Karl Jaspers, 1883-1969, came up with this theory about an axenzite, or axial age, that took place in civilization stretching from the Mediterranean to the East China Sea from about the 8th to the 3rd centuries BCE. Jaspers had pointed out that living in different places, completely unawares of one another, all at the same time period, were not just Confucius, Laozi, Mozi, Zhuangzi, and Liezi, but also Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Homer, and in India, Hinduism and Jainism were, were thriving. Gautama Buddha was also walking around India. Zoroaster was teaching in Persia. In fact, the year of Zoroaster's death was the year Confucius was born. In the Holy Land, these were the times of the prophets Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. I mean, in a, it was a very tight bandwidth when all these people lived. That was the marquee fact of Jasper's theory of the Axial Age. These philosophers and founders of religions, arguably the first great thinkers produced by their respective ancient civilizations, all had their moment on this earth pretty much about the same time. The lives of Confucius and the Buddha, only 12 years apart. Carl Jasper said it this way, quote, 
the spiritual foundations of humanity were laid simultaneously and independently in China, India, Persia, Judea, and Greece. And these are the foundations upon which humanity still subsists today. End quote. Whether or not Jasper's theory is true, we can't know for sure. It does have its critics. But surviving texts clearly show the most relevant issues that face human beings wherever they congregate in large numbers were being pondered and argued by all these thinkers in all these places at about the same time, for the first time. So when did China's philosophers make their first appearance? In the Chinese philosophy history timeline, nothing of great significance happened until the Zhou dynasty started breaking up in the late 8th century BCE. The date for the demise of the Western Zhou is usually pegged at 771 BCE, when the ruling family was chased out of the capital in their present-day Xi'an. They fled to Henan province, where Luoyang is today, and thence began the Eastern Zhou Dynasty. That's where everything really starts. The first half of the Eastern Zhou was called the Spring and Autumn Period, and the second half, well, that was a violent, blood-dripping time in Chinese history. It's known as the Warring States Period. When the final phase of this Zhan Guoxi Dai came, there were seven states left standing from what were once dozens during the Western Zhou. And by 221 BCE, there was only one, the Qin State, led at the time by King Ying Zheng, much better known as the first emperor of China, Qin Shi Huang. We'll look at the Qin later on. For now, let's sit back and make ourselves comfortable as we look at the Zhou Dynasty, former and latter, and see how all the ingredients in China were just right for this explosion of philosophic thought. Trying to scrape together enough grains of pre-Confucian philosophy isn't an easy thing to do. Yeah, there's fragments of writings and inscriptions that have been uncovered, but most of the time, we don't know for sure who said what, and even when we have something, we're not sure what its intended meaning is. The farthest back I was able to go was to the very genesis of the Zhou dynasty, to the days of the venerable King Wen and his two sons, the older King Wu and younger Zhou Gong, the Duke of Zhou. Like Yao, Shun, and Yu, this trinity from the founding years of the Zhou are held up as the epitome of benevolence and virtue in a ruler. They did no wrong. This is all around 11th century BCE. King Wen lived from 1152 to 1056. Around that time lived a man named Yu Xiong, who posterity has referred to as Master Yu, or Yu Zi. We know of Yu Zi because some fragments of his writing appeared later on in history and a number of ancient classics and compendia, such as the Book of Han, and in the Qing Dynasty Qianlong Emperor's Encyclopedia to End All Encyclopedias, the Siku Qianshu, uh, just to name a couple. And not just Yuzi, quite a few philosophers are only remembered in the fragments of their teachings that managed to be saved, commented on, and then mercifully inserted into some collection that kept the work alive. Now, we're only hearing this on Sima Qian's authority, but Yuzi 
who came from uh, Jingzhou in Hubei, served as the Huoshi for the first five Zhou kings. The Huoshi was a ceremonial post at the royal court that involved anything having to do with fire. So back then, rituals you know, carried a lot of weight, and much faith was placed in them. So his role was significant at the time. He was also referred to as a teacher and advisor to the ruling Ji clan, the founders of the Zhou dynasty. Yu Zi had previously been in the employ of the Shang rulers, but defected to the Ji's and served them till his last days. It was supposedly Yu Zi who was the first to say, He who renounces fame has no sorrow. Yu Zi is not a household name in Chinese history or even Chinese philosophy, for that matter. His philosophy is hard to discern. No surprise there. He wrote about constant changes and the cycles of the universe and nature. His 22-chapter work, called the Yuzi, is slotted in the proto-Daoist category. Not exactly Taoism, but you know, not anything else either. But he also touched on certain matters that would be discussed argued and debated for centuries after he left his earthly form. Those concerned what made a ruler fit to rule, how to reward and punish, what made good politics, nothing profound, but, as I mentioned, scholars in the later Zhou and in the Han considered Yu words of sufficient enough import to keep his memory and scant content alive in the collected works they compiled for posterity. You know, it's a miracle we have as much history of Chinese philosophy as we do. More got lost than discovered. And we could only imagine how many Confuciuses didn't make it past the Zhou or the Han before their work was lost and their lives forgotten. This next person I wanted to mention, he's, he's not really called a philosopher as much as he was a statesman. I'm reluctant to pass up he who was of such great importance that Confucius said of him, if it hadn't been for the gifts conferred to the Chinese people by Guangzhou, we'd all be a bunch of barbarians. Guangzhou lived from 720 to 645 BCE. Confucius was born 94 years after Guangzhou's death, so he was an immediate beneficiary of Guangzhou's many contributions to political order, laws, Chinese culture, and to philosophy as well. Guangzhou is remembered for many things. He's, of course, been mentioned in previous CHP episodes. Historically, he was the prime minister to Duke Huan of the state of Qi, Qi Huanggong, the first of the hegemons. These hegemons were sort of like uh, primus inter pares for all feudal lords who swore fealty to the Zhou king. He spoke for them all and had the muscle power to give orders and maintain some semblance of order between all these future warring states. As Zhou Gong is held up as the ultimate example of the perfect regent, so Guangzhou is equally esteemed as the perfect prime minister or right hand to the ruler. With Guangzhou at his side, Duke Huan's Qi state became the most powerful force in Zhou Dynasty China. Under Guangzhou's steady guidance, China transitioned from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. He put the Qi fiscal house in order and got the entire state firing on all cylinders militarily, culturally, and administratively. He helped establish a legal code that would, well, 
incorrectly put him in the same pot as the legalists, Han Fei and Li Si, but he would have been more of a Confucianist than a legalist. Under Guangzhou, the whole concept of the Chinese gentleman began to take shape. Not the British version of what constitutes a gent. This is the Chinese Jinzi, a man of noble character, of virtue, an ideal man whose character embodied the virtue of benevolence and whose acts were in accordance with the rights and with rightness. If I may quote the magnificent Pleco app, Guangzhou's Jinzi didn't have to come from the moneyed or privileged class. No big deal to hear that in 2017. But back in the early 7th century BCE, that was a new and revolutionary idea. Being and acting in accordance with all that being a Jinza meant, it became like a religion to the aristocracy and this emerging group. And as Jasper's axial age gathered speed, it was Guangzhou who got the pitch ready in China for what was to follow with the likes of Lao Tzu. Confucius, and all their disciples. During Guangzhou's time, Qi State became the model for this new and sophisticated land of opportunity where people could come to and study under the patronage of the ruling house. Qi had become the first of these states to attract scholars and to patronize them. And, you know, as they said later on in history, created the environment where a hundred flowers can bloom and a hundred schools of thought might contend. The atmosphere for stimulating this kind of philosophical and intellectual discussion developed much quicker in the wake of Guangzhou. And we'll see next chapter, the preeminent intellectual institution in ancient China will get built there in Qi State. The history of Chinese philosophy really had its beginnings right when the political center broke down and the Zhou Dynasty kings lost their power. Once that gravitational force was lost, it became a long, hard slog, lasting centuries, where the more powerful devoured the less mighty. As I said, what were once dozens of these states and statelets eventually got whittled down to seven. And then these seven would beat the you-know-what out of each other for generations on end. It was, a, it was a miserable time. And swearing loyalty to many of these vanquished feudal lords who didn't make it to the final seven, who no longer had anyone to lord it over, were these hereditary warriors, knights. They weren't your average army grunts. These were educated men. And these... Suddenly, unemployed knights became known, in English anyway, as knights errant. Errant, in the old French, means wandering. So a wandering knight, like a Japanese ronin. In Mandarin, they were known as the xia shi, or just the shi class. And these knights errant grew in numbers very quickly, as more of them found themselves on their own due to the defeat of their lord. These Chinese knights errant, they became... The heroes glorified in all the Jin Yong wuxia novels. Sima Qian put these guys on a pedestal. I mean, they were noble, totally selfless, ready to dive in and help the oppressed or peasant in distress. And as I said, they were, they were educated and had studied the classics of their time and were schooled in all the major ceremonies and rituals. Yeah, there's been a million movies made about these heroes. These shi, or xia shi, along with other educated nobles, 
were the class that evolved into the Ru school of philosophers. Ru? R-U. Confucius belonged in this category. In English, we say Confucianism, but nobody uses that word in China. This school of thought that included Confucianism and others formed the Ru school. When you look up Ru in the dictionary, it just says it means Confucianism. But in more ancient times, it meant a scholar or learned person. The Shi, or scholar officials, made up the core base of the Ru class. You could consider them the lowest of those who made up the top layers of society. These former knights were the ones who worked that layer of middle and lower level civil bureaucrats in the government. Your average Zhou Dynasty civil servant. So in the century following, all that Guan Zhong had laid the groundwork for while in the employ of Duke Huan of Qi sprang these Ru philosophers, of which Confucius was just one of many. They became teachers when education became a path to social mobility. People of talent now, for the first time in China, had this potential yellow brick road to greener pastures, even if their relative wasn't a noble. Education became the fast track to the good time. Yeah, once the Western Joe ended, though, the good times began to appear farther and farther away in China's historical rearview mirror. Life became very bumpy and unpredictable. And that's when people began to start discussing and arguing what was the best way to get out of this mess. Back then, they believed in a top-down approach and that it all began with the ruler. So amidst all the unpleasantness up and down the Yellow River Valley, people began to have these discussions. They discussed very weighty matters like what makes the best ruler? How shall we organize ourselves so that harmony is achieved? What was the best system of government? All pretty boring and simple stuff in our day. But back then, when all these ideas were fresh, new, and without precedent, it was a very big deal. Because of the ancient texts and oral histories passed on from earlier times, people knew there was a period in China when peace was enjoyed by everyone. And the kings were virtuous, the country prospered. Now it was just the opposite. It was every feudal lord for himself. And some serious debates started happening about where the Huaxia people and their civilization should go from here. Into this state of affairs that defined the 6th century BCE in China stepped all the names we know and love. Lao Tzu and Confucius, most notably. And these two great thinkers, before they left this earth gave posterity plenty to think about as far as how to deal with these tumultuous times in the Eastern Zhou. And that is the setup for next episode. We're going to look at a few of these dozens and dozens of schools of thought that became known as the Baijia, or Hundred Schools. We'll examine the life and times of a few of these philosophers during the time of Confucius. Also, much later on, in Part 6, actually, uh, we'll also review the life and times of Lao Tzu and the beginnings of Taoism. We still have a long and pleasant way to go before we reach the Ming Dynasty. I hope you'll stick with the program. Let me say a brief word about sources. I don't want to give any trade secrets away or anything, but the standard drill here at the CHP is, well, I buy all these books on Amazon with my Amex points, and I also have a somewhat comprehensive Chinese history library, and I use the internet a lot, Google Books, 
uh, bits and pieces of this and that from yeah, a bunch of websites scattered all over. But as any researcher will tell you, all sources are not created equal. The big one for me, first and foremost, was Feng Yolan's Zhongguo Zhe Xue Shi, later published in English as A Short History of Chinese Philosophy. Feng Yolan, he's not a household name, history books left him out. He came to the U.S. in 1919 on a Boxer's Indemnity Scholarship and later studied philosophy under John Dewey. Feng lived from 1895 to 1990, so he got to take in quite a lot of Chinese history. He did so much to popularize Chinese philosophy at a time when it had become all but forgotten. In the 20th century, many fingers pointed at Confucianism as the ontological cause for so many of China's failings, going back to the Treaty of Nanjing. Then along came this book, and it brought a lot of people back to the study of China's great thinkers. Feng worked tirelessly to show how Chinese philosophy, ancient though it was, still mattered and was still relevant in our modern age. If you're not familiar with this book, and if by chance this series piques your interest sufficiently enough, I would recommend anyone to start here. Feng Yolan, A Short History of Chinese Philosophy. Brian W. Van Norden's Introduction to Classical Chinese Philosophy was also useful. Will Durant had quite a bit to say about Chinese philosophy. I love that guy. Will and Ariel Durant, The Story of Civilization. That gave me a nice big-picture view of the history. My stalwart for anything that happened in China between 900 and 1800, Frederick W. Mote, Imperial China. He came in handy for the part on Neo-Confucianism. As far as Internet resources go, eh, the Google took me all over the place. There are Internet encyclopedias, uh, scholarly papers in English and Chinese, articles and journals, labor of love websites, videos. Well, the amount of available resources out there to wallow in are quite plentiful. I'll also mention uh, Harvard professor Michael Puitt and Christine Gross Lowe's book, The Path, and that will come in the final episode. I also got quite a bit of mileage out of John Minford's translation and commentary on the I Ching, the essential translation of the ancient Chinese oracle and book of wisdom. The edition I have came out on Penguin in 2015. Richard J. Smith's uh, The I Ching, a biography, also very informative. That's part of the lives of great religious books from uh, Princeton University Press. So, until the next time, and I promise I won't keep you waiting six months, this is your friendly and humble host, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from a secret location somewhere in the metro Los Angeles area. Part two next week, be there or be square. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in after such a long break, too. And I look forward to spending 40 or 50 minutes with you next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.